I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, second stage of the war. Israeli forces advance into Gaza, intensifying their attacks on Hamas. Out of the race. The Republican Party has one less presidential candidate. We have the latest. Pleas for food, water, and prayers. Hundreds of thousands in Acapulco are without resources after a Category 5 hurricane ripped the city apart. And coming to a close. The month-long Synod on Synodality wraps up its first session. There were votes and discussions on more than 80 proposals, but it was Pope Francis who gave the final word on reforms to the church. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addresses the world saying a ceasefire in the war with Hamas is not an option. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. This, as the IDF says, a female soldier captured by Hamas on October 7th has been freed. Hamas and other groups are believed to be holding around 240 captives. They released a video today purporting to show three female hostages. Israel has expanded its ground operations, entering what officials call the second phase of the war. The army says dozens of militants have been killed. We go now to Tal Heinrich, spokesperson for the Israeli government. Tal, good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Israel, as we know, is now in its second stage of its war against Hamas. Tell us what that entails and why one senior Israeli official says this may take months. It may take months, indeed, Tracy. And we said that this stage two will come, uh, uh, an expanded uh, ground operation in Gaza. And uh, this is what we're doing. We are working towards the goal of dismantling the Hamas regime, their governance body, uh, their military wing. And uh, once we are done, the Hamas will be no longer, because as a nation, the state of Israel has decided that we can no longer live next to a terror enclave and that they can no longer have the, the capabilities and the motivation to hurt us as they did on October 7th. Also, please keep in mind that uh, while this is ongoing, Israeli cities and towns are being bombarded constantly with over 8,150 rockets in just uh, 24 days. And that has been the situation, honestly, uh, for 16 years now, but no more. We can no longer live next to this uh, existential threat. And Tal, today uh, the Israeli military said infantry, tanks and armored units are attempting to move toward groups of armed Palestinian operatives inside of Gaza. Um, can you tell us how many Israeli troops are now there and how far are they? So we cannot go into um, military operational activity and describe it on air. It will be very irresponsible on our behalf or expand about military, military strategy moving ahead. Uh, of course, it's a very complex operation for a, a few reasons. Uh, first, because we have the hostages there, as you know, nearly 240 hostages who are still being held captive uh, by Hamas after 24 days. Uh, and we're calling on this terrorist regime to unconditionally and immediately release them. 
them. But also what's making this operation very complex uh, is that we want to hit Hamas very hard, but they have embedded themselves in a civilian population, in, in, in urban structures, for example, like hospitals. The IDF spokesperson just uh, a few days ago uh, released a very detailed presentation of the largest hospital in Gaza. It's called the Shifa Hospital, under which and in uh, you can see bunkers and the command center of Hamas. And we have Hamas terrorists who uh, we have caught and were arrested and interrogated here in Israel. And they, in fact, admit that this is where their command center is located. So they have bunkers underneath uh, hospitals, underneath, uh, you know, uh, youth centers and schools and, and clinics and mosques and so on. And we obviously want to minimize civilian casualty, which is a tragedy of war, every war, even justified wars throughout history. Yeah, uh, I also understand the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, said, unfortunately, a 23-year-old German-Israeli woman kidnapped by Hamas gunmen during the October 7 terror attacks has been found dead. What can you tell us about the status of the hostages? What more do you know? So we know that the IDF has notified uh, 239 Israeli families that they know for a fact that their loved ones have been abducted. We don't know anything about their condition, and we are demanding that the Red Cross uh, will fulfill its, uh, you know, its, its purpose and go uh, pay them a visit, get access to them, and examine their condition because we, we don't know anything about the conditions in which they are being held. We, I mean, from uh, the four hostages that they released so far, we know that these are horrendous conditions. And the only reason why they released them was because of mounting international pressure. And more pressure is coming, uh, military pressure and diplomatic pressure. And we really, really hope that they will release them. All right. Tal, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Tracy. Well, the Vatican Secretary for Relations with States spoke earlier today about the Israel-Hamas war with officials in Iran. Archbishop Paul Gallagher and his counterpart in Tehran addressed concerns that the conflict will spread to other parts of the Middle East. One expert in Middle East affairs says the concerns are well-founded. Let's go now to Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He has served under several secretaries of state as an advisor on Arab-Israeli negotiations, helping to broker peace in the Middle East. Aaron, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming on today. I want to get your take on what we see playing out right now. And are you concerned that this will spill out into a bigger regional conflict? I mean, on the issue of escalation, there's always a concern. So far over the last three weeks, when we talk about escalation, we talk about two issues. Number one, a major conflict between Israel and Hezbollah, the Shia militia that uh, operates as the most powerful force in Lebanon with roughly 150,000 to 200,000 high trajectory weapons of varying ranges and lethality. And that's uh, part A. Part B, even more serious, would be involvement of Iran. At this stage, both the Iranians and Hezbollah appear to want to restrain themselves. They're prepared to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. I think Hezbollah does not want to risk its huge assets in Lebanon because they know that Israel will uh, respond incredibly forcefully. Plus, the U.S. has two carrier strike groups in Eastern Med with 200 striker aircraft. And chances are uh, we, we would be drawn into that, uh, or if, the, if it truly escalated, between Israel and Iran, I, I don't see any way the United States would stay out of it with respect to Iran. And you could end up with a regional crisis that could involve the Gulf, plunging financial markets, rising oil prices, uh, a lot of death and destruction. 
Yeah, I mean, is there any way to get this under control? We know, uh, speaking of Iran, uh, just issued that stark warning to Israel and the U.S. saying that red lines have been crossed. Aaron, what exactly does that mean? And how should the U.S. and Israel respond? What would you advise? I mean, I think the administration, my administration, is responding pretty effectively. They've deployed these carrier strike groups in the Eastern Mediterranean, complete with 2,000 Marine Expeditionary Force, which is skilled in amphibious landings, humanitarian issues, evacuations of embassies if necessary, uh, and uh, treatment of the wounded. So uh, I'm not sure there's much more the administration can do. It's really not our call. Uh, I'm sure that messages have been sent to Iran and to Hezbollah both directly and indirectly to warn of the consequences should they seek to escalate. There was some concern earlier on that the Israelis might preempt uh, with a strike against Hezbollah since they're deployed in force up north. Uh, but that seems not to be the issue right now. What is the focus right now is the ground campaign in Gaza, and it is very opaque, very unclear uh, on the granular level what the Israelis are actually doing. They've laid out the broad strategy, and they've clearly laid out their end state, their goal, which is the eradication of Hamas as a gov governing force in Gaza. How they're going to get there, can they get there, and what comes the day after, I think these are all unanswerable questions. Yeah, that was where I was going to go next with that is, you know, Israel saying that's the goal here is to eliminate Hamas. But, but what comes after that? Well, essentially, the Israelis can't and, and won't and have no intention of occupying Gaza permanently. They would have to participate actively in a buy-in to create a new post-Hamas reality in Gaza, if that's even possible. But it would involve a transitional mechanism probably with uh, uh, some sort of security force, maybe Arabic-speaking Arab states might be one, uh, you'd end up with a transitional mechanism of Palestinians, presumably governing themselves, with an enormous uh, resourced uh, enterprise by the Europeans and, and by the Saudis as well. But look, it's the international community, which doesn't have a great history of rising to the challenge in crisis. Someone needs to own this. Someone needs to lead it. And frankly, that's someone, given how closely we've tethered ourselves to um, to the Israelis during this crisis, whether they want to or not, I think that some someone or something is the Biden administration. Aaron, before I let you go, uh, we have seen repeated calls from Pope Francis, uh, including again yesterday, calling for a peaceful solution to the situation in the Middle East. What role do you think the Vatican or other church leaders could play in trying to end this conflict? And do you think peace is possible? When you say peace, we're talking about peace between who and whom, between Israel and the Palestinians, between Israel and the Lebanese, Israel and Iran, Israel and the Syrians. I mean, right now, the blood is up everywhere. Uh, seems to me that both Israeli and Palestinian societies, deeply traumatized, are going to require some sort of interim period. They both have decisions to make with respect to their respective leaderships a great unhappiness with the current Netanyahu government, profound unhappiness with uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. Look, the Pope is an extraordinary human with tremendous moral force, certainly among many Catholics. And he ought to be rightly concerned about Catholic interests in the region, in, in the region and, of course, the international peace. But as a moderator, as a mediator, as a force to compel these parties to look for a more enlightened path, um, I'm not sure there's much of a role for him to play there. We're going to leave it right there. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it, Jason.
President Joe Biden says Israel, quote, has every right and responsibility to defend its citizens from terrorism. At the same time, he is also calling for the protection of civilians, as well as increasing the flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Tracy, President Joe Biden also discussed in a phone call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the ongoing efforts to locate and secure the release of hostages, including American citizens who remain unaccounted for. As President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden landed at Joint Base Andrews, returning from Delaware and back to Washington, the fate of 240 people captured by Hamas terrorists remains unknown. These pictures showing the families of hostages meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this past weekend. Bibi Netanyahu, shalom. Hamas has released a video purporting to show three women captured in the horrific terror attack of October 7th. One of the women delivers a brief statement, likely under duress, criticizing Israel's response to the hostage crisis. At the White House, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby discussed humanitarian pauses. We certainly agree that the idea of humanitarian pauses uh, should be seriously considered. Again, as a chance to get aid in, make sure it can get to the people that need it, but also help us get hostages out. John Kirby also says the U.S., since the conflict started, has emphasized respecting civilian life, abiding by the laws of war, and has urged Israel to try to minimize civilian casualties. Hamas, on the other hand, uses civilians to hide behind. Also today, artificial intelligence, its potential for good, and also its potential for harm. And at the White House, President Biden signing a sweeping executive order to guide its rapid development, including requiring safety and security standards and protecting consumers. I'm determined to do everything in my power to promote and demand responsible innovation. And as tensions in the region rise over the Israel-Hamas war, the Pentagon says U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq have been attacked at least 23 times from mid-October to late October. Many of the drones and rockets that were used were intercepted. The U.S. warns it will continue to respond to attacks on U.S. personnel. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. In Maine, more than 1,000 people gathered for a vigil in the city of Lewiston to remember those who lost their lives in last week's deadly mass shooting. The service took place at the Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul. It comes just two days after the body of the suspected gunman was found. The service was led by leaders of various faiths focused on bringing the community together. 18 people lost their lives in last week's mass shooting, the deadliest in Maine's history. Well, we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including devastating storm. How a popular resort town in Mexico is picking up the pieces following a deadly hurricane. Plus, Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales tells us about a proposed rule change to the EEOC and why it involves abortion. At least 
45 people are dead on Mexico's southern Pacific coast amid the destruction left by Hurricane Otis. Rescue and recovery efforts are underway following the devastation in the wake of the Category 5 storm. At the time of landfall, Hurricane Otis brought with it winds of 165 miles per hour. Most of those who died in the resort city of Acapulco. Acapulco. Dozens of others are still missing. Other race for the White House thins out after former Vice President Mike Pence made an unexpected announcement on Saturday. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president. Pence gathered great experience as a vice president, governor and congressman, but he failed to gain traction in presidential polls. Former President Donald Trump still has a commanding lead in the race for the Republican nomination. He plans to skip next month's GOP debate in Miami and instead hold a separate rally. On the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations, such as extra rest breaks. But now proposed changes by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission would include the right to abortions. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the details and reaction. Good evening. The proposed changes by the EEOC have yet to go into effect. Right now, the EEOC is currently reviewing public comments and are expected to make a decision by the end of December. But the issue has already caught the attention of pro-life lawmakers. We passed a bill which both Democrats and Republicans agreed did not touch abortion. Uh, specifically said that it did not touch abortion. Even during the floor debate last December, Democrat co-sponsor Senator Bob Casey, a Catholic, made clear abortion accommodations were not included. Under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, could not, could not issue any regulation that requires abortion leave, nor does the, the act permit the EEOC to require employers to provide abortion leave in violation of state law. Before the law was passed, Senator James Langford offered an amendment clarifying the abortion language, but members said it wasn't needed. The Biden administration is the most pro-abortion administration ever. They're they literally on a war against children that in everywhere that they can, they're trying to be able to reach out and to increase the number of abortions in America. The Biden administration is just taking this Pregnancy Fairness Act and using it for a vehicle to make abortions available, even in states where they're not even legal. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, chair of the Senate Pro-Life Caucus, tells me ever since the EEOC announced its proposed rule change. We did write letters strongly opposing this, saying, you know, the interpretation is not what you are assuming that it is and that uh, you are definitely taking it out of context. They're going to lose in court. We wrote the language so that they cannot win. They are going to lose, period, end of story. But just to interject it, to create that uncertainty, is something that they should not have done. Again, the EEOC is expected to make a final decision on December 29th of this year. Pro-life lawmakers tell me that they might decrease the EEOC funding for next year. I'll stay on top of the issue. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, the final word. The Senate wraps up its first session with Pope Francis making some heavy decisions. Plus, an update on a former Jesuit priest and artist accused of serious abuse spanning decades.
has lifted the statue of limitations in the case of Father Marco Rupnik, the former Jesuit priest and well-known artist accused of serious abuses against women. The Holy See's decision comes after news that Father Rupnik returned to priestly ministry in the diocese in his native Slovenia. Well, the initial nearly month-long gathering for the Synod on Synodality has come to a close, and among its proposals, a larger role for lay people. Il Synod non è terminato oggi. Questa è la prima sessione. The report outlined key proposals discussed during the Assembly's confidential conversations. The text was approved paragraph by paragraph by a vote of 344 Synod delegates. For the first time, those voters included women and other non-bishops. EWTN News Vatican correspondent Colin Flynn has more. Working late into Saturday evening at the Vatican and after a month-long meeting of church leaders, men and women religious and lay people from all over the world, the Synod on Synodality released its highly anticipated Synthesis Report. The report summarized the deliberations over the weeks and incorporated more than 1,150 proposed amendments to the text. The 344 voting members approved all of the proposed paragraphs with the required two-thirds majority. There was a lot covered in the 42-page document, including increased lay involvement in the life of the church, including decision-making. A greater role for women in the church, although on the controversial issue of women deacons, they recommended further study. More accountability of bishops when it comes to finances. New ministries for the laity, such as a ministry to assist married couples and those preparing for marriage. Gatherings of church leaders to make synodality a permanent part of life at every level of the church. Textos de San Basilio. It's important to note that some of the hot-button issues that were talked about so much throughout the month were not addressed directly in the report. There was no use of the term LGBT in the document, but they did express closeness and support for those who experience loneliness as a result of being faithful to the teachings of the Church on sexuality. There was also no mention of blessing same-sex couples. In the press briefing on the final day, Cardinal Mario Grech, the General Secretary of the Synod, expressed his gratitude for how the participants were open to listening and finding consensus. Most of them created spaces so that one could enter their own heart because there was this mutual listening and sharing. One of the phrases that will remain etched in my heart is when a bishop comes and says, Father Mario, I saw the ice melt. Everybody was happy. Jean-Claude Hollerich, the Synod's Relative General, said that when some of the more amended controversial topics came up for vote, including increasing the role of women in the church, there was not as many voting against it as he would have thought. I think it was clear that some topics would meet greater opposition. I am full of wonder that so many people have voted in favor. So uh, that means that the resistance are not so great as people have thought uh, before. So I am, yes, I am happy with that result.
On Sunday, Pope Francis celebrated Mass in St. Peter's Basilica, where he marked the end of this first session of the synodal process. Today, we do not see the full fruit of this process, but with foresight, we can look at the horizon that opens before us. The Lord will guide us and help us to be a more synodal and more missionary church, worshiping God and serving the women and men of our time, going out to bring the consoling joy of the gospel to all. Attention now shifts to the next months as the participants in the Synod return home and start preparing for next year's concluding meeting in October. In Rome, Colm Flynn, EWTN News Nightly. And finally tonight, Pope Francis reminds the faithful that by loving others, we can reflect God's love like a mirror. Chiamando i fratelli, noi riflettiamo come specchi l'amore del Padre. At a Sunday address at the Vatican, the Holy Father said loving God and our neighbor are inseparable. And the best way to be good to those around us is to always remember God's mercy and kindness toward everyone who seeks them. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.